you. I heard the booing and I know who you are. <laughs> You'll be dealt with on Twitter later. <laughs> so as usual, we'll start off. I'll ask it is you. a sellout, right? It can't get fuller than this, right? I've got a bet with Kanye West. Yeah. So we'll start off as usual. I'll ask a few questions and then we'll move to questions from the audience. So the first question I have for you is, what is the nicest thing that you've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I proposed to my wife, who's here. Um, you know, people looking at her will think, lucky girl. Uh, <laughs> that would be fairly high. Uh, the nicest thing I've done, well, I've had four children, who I think I've, I've added to the human race in a, in a beneficial manner. Um, one of them's here. I'm very proud of him. He's brought his friend, slightly less proud of him, um, the, troublesome, the troublesome friend. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you try and weigh the scales, don't you? Um, I think I don't pretend to be Mother Teresa, that would be vaguely ridiculous, but I, I have my moments. So you are many things, as you said, you're a, a husband, you're a father, um, but you aren't an athlete, you're not a footballer or a cricketer. Well, hang on, hang on. Okay. I did actually get Brian Lara, who's, has he been here He's yet? coming in a couple of weeks. Right, well you can ask him, this will really piss him off. So, Brian Lara, I bowled out for naught in the Caribbean last summer. How much and then smashed him for a six to win the match. Right. So it will really annoy him if you raise this when he comes. So for God's sake, don't do that. Okay, I'll make a note of that. Yeah. You're not a professional footballer or a professional cricketer. Well, only because I chose other professionals. Only because you chose not to. Mm. But, but nonetheless, um, <laughs> earlier there were crowds of journalists waiting to hear your opinion, of course, on Kevin Peterson. Yes. Um, so my question is, why should we listen to you about that? Well, because, uh, <laughs> because I got Brian Lara out for naught, so my credentials have been a, firmly established. I played cricket and watched cricket for 40 years. I played for England Prep Schools a squad, aged 13, as a fast bowler. And then I was like, well, don't laugh, I did. <laughs> uh, and then I, um, I, as I got through my teens and alcohol and women began to interfere with the development progress um, stage, I began to slow down and became a medium pace bowler, then a spin bowler, and now I can barely move. But, um, you know, I had my dreams. I always wanted to be an England cricketer. And so I feel very passionately about the England cricket team. Kevin Peterson, to me, you should get him here. He's a fantastic guest in this kind of environment. He's, uh, he's abrasive, he's combative, He's, uh, he's got a big ego, he can be arrogant, he can be very funny, he's very loyal to his friends, as I've discovered. Um, he's a great dad, he's a great husband. Um, he's never been seen falling out of nightclubs, he's not like you lot, he's not some degenerate student, you know, um, throwing their lives away in a sea of cocaine and alcohol. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's a pretty clean living guy, he's a thorough professional, he trains in incredibly hard. And um, I feel that he has been disgracefully treated. I also think he's the best batsman I've ever seen play for England. And statistically, he's the highest ever run scorer. So you're talking about a guy who's 34, who was told to, if you wanted to come back to England, having been ridiculously sacked in the first place, he should come back and play county cricket, which he hadn't really played for 10 years, and prove himself. Well, yesterday he scored 355 not out. Uh, too short of Surrey's all-time record score. Um, he's a genius. And the reaction of Andrew Strauss, this bald-headed little ball that's been brought into running English cricket, who was lucky enough when he had Peterson playing for him to be successful as a captain, 
very little was down to Strauss himself in my view, has decided that's not good enough and he will not be playing this summer when we have to try and reclaim the ashes from a very pumped up Australian side. So before I bore you all too much with cricket, my assessment of it is it's an absolute fucking disgrace. So you don't think we're going to keep, get the ashes back then? Well, I think my ch the chances of us winning it without Peterson are zero. I think with him, it moves to 40-50%. Australia is still, in my view, a stronger team. But, you know, why, why take away the best player? It would be like you removing the best student from Oxford because some people don't like him or her. It's a ridiculous way of assessing talent. You know, when I used to run a newsroom of 400 journalists at the Mirror... We'll get on to that. Yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> I actually, I actually have money on that being the first question, but we, we can come to that. But, you know, when you have a room, say it's probably about this number in this room, were the number that I employed at any one time over 10 years. And a lot of the best journalists or photographers or sub-editors or whatever were completely dysfunctional misfits um, with all sorts of problems and would whine away and do all sorts of stuff and be a pain in the ass. but they would be brilliant at what they did. And I thought that was a fair price to pay for what ended up in the paper. My, I felt my duty was to the readers, not to insignificant little politics in the office. And I wish they applied that logic to, to the England sporting arena because John Terry, whether you like him or not, remains the best centre-half in the country. Kevin Peterson remains the best batsman. Neither can get a game for England, despite the fact that both football and cricket national teams have been a complete basket case. So then looking at the other side of it then, do you really think Andrew Strauss should resign off the back of this? Yes. But you also said that about Arsene Wenger. Not that I Wenger. think he should resign too. Still? I think most people should resign. Uh, <laughs> if I have to keep bloody doing it, so should they. Um, <laughs> I, uh, look, are there any Arsenal fans in tonight? A few. So, you know, the Wenger thing is, it's, it's like when you have a fantastic marriage that basically starts to go off the boil after about eight years. And until that point, it was brilliant. And then it s starts to be not quite so brilliant. So you don't buy into at his success. At what point do you, do you file for divorce? But the success he's experiencing at the moment, do you buy into that What at all? success? Well, I'm a Tottenham fan, so I wouldn't... So what do you know about football success? <laughs> that, was, that was an easy one. What yardstick can you possibly give me to judge Arsene Wenger? No, I mean, look, by Tottenham standards, he's bloody Emperor Nero. But that's not... <laughs> That is not the rationale that I use for judging him. Let's move on quickly. Um, so, <laughs> as you'll see, we're going to jump between many different areas here. Um, Katie Hopkins. What do you think of Katie Hopkins um, and how she's attempted to remain in the spotlight? Well, you know, she's one of those people that, unfortunately, the voice activates before the brain engages. And even when the brain then engages, there is a massive fault line called utter stupidity. <laughs> so, she... She has this uh, thing, this column she wrote about... Because, uh, you know, there are lots of very good columnists who can be very provocative, but understand that you try and stray from being overtly racist or homophobic or criminally incentivizing in what you write. And she took the drowning of hundreds of people uh, fleeing war-torn countries, most of the wars having been started either directly or indirectly by us and the Allied forces in the Middle East, uh, and, and she takes these people who are drowning in desperation, mothers and young babies, and she says that they are cockroaches, using the analogy of the Nazis about the Jews. And I'm sorry, but that's not funny. It's not provocative. It's disgusting. And when columnists have a huge platform and they're simply disgusting, 
I think it's incumbent on the publishers and everybody else to say, we're not having this. It, it's, an un, it's an unreasonable wielding of power. And it encourages people to see these, these desperate migrants as cockroaches. And of course, they're not. So it's something that's been quite topical amongst univers around universities this year. Do you support no platform policies then, going off the back of that? What do you mean? So no platform policy in the sense of if you think someone is disgusting, but someone else might think they're not, would you give them no, no platform then? Well, Say you're look, not allowed that platform. If, if it's the wider debate about free speech, right? I often hear, hey, she's got free speech. Of course she has. You know, but we have laws in this country governing certain aspects of free speech. Whether you agree with them or not, you can't encourage people to racially abuse people or racially attack people in this country, and quite rightly. Um, that, in my view, comes under that category. The denigration of desperate migrants is completely unacceptable. So platform, no platform, it's, it's human decency, isn't it? So moving from one controversial figure to another, why did nobody care when Jeremy Clarkson punched you in the face? Bloody good question. He attacked me in a savage way. Uh, he actually hit me so pathetically weakly that he, he gouged my temple. I have a scar here when I get a tan, and it's from his uh, signet ring I think he had on, which gouged me here. But the good news was, in hitting my head, he broke his little finger and disfigured it so badly, it's never fully recovered. So we kind of both have our little war wounds. Um, look, Jeremy Clarkson and I had 10 years of war and it was particularly annoying that my kids all loved Top Gear. Um, and then eventually he texted me about four or five months ago, maybe, maybe later, I, I, it was last summer actually, and he just it was brilliantly British. It was like at one in the morning, Morgan Clarkson here, we should end this. Drink? And then I found out that we shared the same pub without realising it. I said, Scarsdale, 7pm, Monday. And he arrived on a push bike, looking like he was about to die. And... Uh, <laughs> I arrived on foot and I could see the locals going, holy fuck. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, we then just got blind drunk and it was incredibly awkward for the first half hour because all we could do is look at each other and think about all the terrible things we called each other and indeed the blows we had inflicted. Uh, but I, I was proud when he, when he punched me that he did then admit that my, my exact words when the third blow crunched into my head were, is that it? My three-year-old hits me harder than that. Um, but, you know, he punched me three times and everybody thought this was probably worthy of some kind of honour from the Queen. And then he punches some BBC producer and all hell breaks loose. So, yeah, double standards. <laughs> uh, so I suppose that leads me on to my, my next question. Uh, when you say people view, thought that maybe you sh Jeremy Clarkson should have got a, an award or something for that. <laughs> um, so the public persona that you have? Uh, is it something that you've created or is it what you're actually like? Do you think uh, you're being I'm, I am really like this. So you like this at home? Yes, my wife will confirm I'm exactly the same. She's nodding. So yeah. <laughs> She's nodding wearily and uh, my son would say, yeah, I think, um, I think the thing about public life is this, because of social media, you know, I look at these people, I know lots of well-known people in all walks of life and I read their Twitter feed, which is, you know, which makes Mother Teresa look sleazy. And I'm like, really? You want me to try and believe this guff you're putting on Twitter or Facebook, whatever it is, creating an, a completely false persona for themselves and the public lapping it up, you know, and every other tweet about their charitable work and this, that and the other, pictures of them in Somalia and so on. And I'm like, but I know the reality about you and you're an awful human being. 
masquerading as some great freedom fighter. Let's not bring Russell Brand into it at this stage, but you get, you get where I'm going here, right? Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's that kind of duplicity in public life I find incredibly irksome. Whereas I am, I think, authentic to myself, and that's all I care about. And people either like it or they don't like it. I, I honestly don't care. I mean, why would you really care what people you don't know think about you? If you think about it. Speaking about Twitter, so obviously you're quite famous for some of your feuds that you have. And with people like Alan Sugar or Gary Lineker, it's always <coughs> quite clearly quite playful. Um, but is there anyone who you actually loathe? Um, I tend to, I had this discussion actually with my wife after the, the Clarkson feud ended. I tend to like feuding, but then making up. I think you should always at some stage bring it to an end. Um, I think Heather Mills would be a, a big ask to try and mend that one. Um, I introduced her to Paul McCartney, actually introduced her to Paul McCartney. And I was in Kensington High Street years after their divorce and Paul McCartney's daughter walked past me, Stella, and then stopped and came back and went, Dad says thanks, that cost him 50 million. <laughs> uh, so she'd be hard. Cherie Blair and I never saw eye to eye. I think that would be fairly irreconcilable on both sides. Ian Hislop, annoying little gnome. Um, <laughs> Well, he is, he is, isn't he? And, he? and this whole thing of private eye being the great standard bearer of journalistic ethics and everything is complete and utter nonsense. Half of it is completely... I think we should talk about journalistic ethics, actually. Well, can I just give him one last whack? Yeah, okay. um, it is, it is, it's the idea that he's a classic example, Saint Ian Hislop, you know. Do me a favour, half of private eye is completely inventive. Now, I quite enjoy it when it's not me that they're targeting, but let's be honest about what it actually is. Pretty vile little rag run by pretty vile little people about pretty vile little people. So, you know, vile's all around. Speaking of the Daily Mirror, um, if phone hacking is proven there, mm -hmm. do you think that it should face the same fate as the news of the world? Uh, you mean shut the paper down? Well, let's wait and see how the legal process plays out. I'm actually, I can't talk about this because I'm in the middle of it, as I'm sure you're aware. And I will talk about it when it's all over. But, you know, phone hacking is wrong. Although I always say to people, if, if all that the journalists had done was phone hack Osama bin Laden and terrorists and expose terror plots, of course, they'd all be showered in, in honours. And there is a hypocrisy about the broadsheet newspapers, like The Guardian, who openly admitted phone hacking, but no one seems to mind, and who pay Edward Snowden or pay uh, Julian Assange for illegally acquired information, some of which is in the public interest and some of which isn't. So journalists over the years have broken the law, often with impunity, tends to be the tabloids that get held to account more than the broadsheets. And I don't think that is reasonable or fair. But with the mirror, let's see how it plays out. Would you say that's because the tabloids have more sway than the broadsheets? Um, possibly, although I think if you look at the election, did they really? Or did the electorate wake up and say, we don't really fancy Ed Miliband and his stupid Moses tablets? and his inability to eat a, eat a burger or whatever it was, or bacon roll. It's, you know, in the end, you can't kid the public. So I think the, the papers can influence to a certain degree, but nothing like they used to when they sold 10 times as many copies. Do you think there's a reason for that? Oh, sorry, because of the copies. Do you think it's the Twitter and social media has replaced that? Yeah, I think it's... Um, Ed Miliband was probably brought down by um, just the, the fact that people in the end thought, you know what, I don't really like Cameron but I kind of quite like the fact that Britain seems to be stable economically compared to the rest of Europe. And you can't argue with that, whether you're on the left or right. It's, we are better off than most of Europe right now. Why take a risk? I voted for the Animal Welfare Party. 
because I think a stain on all their ghastly houses of the particular leaders that we had to vote for. Um, but actually, you know, and I also believe in the importance of voting. So I think, um, look, in the end, you can't argue that the Tories won it by a mile. I don't know how popular that would have been in this room, but I can tell you, Middle England basically did not fancy taking a risk with a Braveheart lady from Scotland careering through England and <laughs> mad, mad Ed Miliband. So I mean, you said some okay, mildly positive things about the Conservative Party, but you said you don't really support David Cameron. I don't like Cameron because, I'll be perfectly blunt with you, I don't like Cameron. A very good friend of mine is Andy Coulson. He went to jail for phone hacking and he worked for David Cameron for three and a half years and David Cameron dumped him like a sack of cold spuds and never called him, never called his family, never wrote to him. Now, by contrast, Geoffrey Archer told me that John Major, before, during and after his incarceration, could not have been a better friend. And in the end, you know, what is the point of being a friend if when someone who's been incredibly supportive to you has the worst moment of their life, you just desert them? That, to me, is not the mark of a character that I want to be associated with. So my refusal to vote for him was almost entirely personal. I was not going to give him my vote because I don't think that is the way proper people behave, regardless of what has happened to the person who's their friend. But would you have voted Conservative otherwise? No. But then why not? Because I don't believe that they have a, f a vision for the country that enthuses me. I voted... First time I voted was Margaret Thatcher. Voted for her a couple of times. Liked her leadership, as most people did at the time. Thought she went a bit bonkers over the poll tax and then went off her. Uh, like John Major, I thought he was a good man. I think he is a good man. Um, what Geoffrey Archer told me confirmed to me he's a, a decent guy. Um, I voted for Tony Blair first couple of times. Didn't vote for him after the Iraq war, which I thought was well, the mirror opposed the Iraq. You know, people go on about the mirror for hacking or whatever, but why not go on about our opposition to the Iraq war before, during and after it, where we were the only really vociferous newspaper out there saying this is illegal and unethical. If they listened to us, we would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And, and my brother was fighting out there for the British Army, being duped by his own government over weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. So I'm very proud of what the Mirror did with that, although you'll never hear about it or read about it. But I think that those things are where a tabloid can be really important. And you can be proud of the journalism they do. So looking ahead then, what do you think the next five years of Conservative government, what do you think this country will look like? in five years' time? Well, I think uh, Boris will try everything he can to make sure he's the next Prime Minister and may or may not be successful. Um, Farage, who said, you can trust me, I, if I don't win, I will resign. He resigned for 10 seconds and then immediately they refused to accept it and he came back. Uh, Clegg, tuition fees, have I got to try and justify his appalling antics? Um, so I think that, you know, what I would like to see is a bit of old-fashioned honesty from politicians just saying this is the state of the country and this is our vision for where we want to be in five years and here's how we're going to get there are you with us or not and actually be bold because it's only great leaders that do that that's why in the end people can talk about parties and policies and manifestos and you guys might be smart enough to understand them but the reality is most of the electorate aren't they look at ed miliband and they think can't eat a bacon roll so do you think that the scots what... look at nicola sturgeon and think Mel Gibson. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, talking about uh, Ed Miliband, so David Miliband came out today um, and said that the election campaign didn't work because... Yeah, nice pair of brothers, aren't they? One stabs one in the back, the other one then stabs the other in the back, and it's like, really? I wouldn't do that to my brothers, either way. All these Labour greats now coming out saying, well, I always knew Miliband was useless. What were they saying three days before the election? Ed's cracked it, he's had a great campaign, it's too close to call, we're right behind you. They are gutless little cowards. I would respect them more if one of them came out now and went, you know what, I actually still support what Ed Miliband was doing and I'm not going to be a hypocrite. So why do you think David Miliband came out then? Because he's probably trying to position himself to be the leader after the next one. He probably thinks the Tories will have five good years, the economy is likely to, to become stronger and they'll probably win again next time. So who's going to be the Labour leader after this one? Well, we'll look forward to seeing that, maybe. Um, moving on to something else. So talent shows like Britain's Got Talent um, are often criticised for exploiting people and for laughing at the people up on stage. Do you feel that this is a fair criticism and is something you've been proud of no, being part of? No, it's, it's a bloody audition. No one's holding a gun to their head. I'm not saying come down here or I'm going to shoot you. It's like come down here and maybe win a million quid in a career in show business. And if you think those auditions are rough, you know, I did four years of Britain's Got Talent, six years of America's Got Talent, probably saw thousands of acts. And, you know, even the young kids and stuff, they were the ones I was least worried about. They were the ones least bothered by the whole thing. They all thought it was great fun. You know, the ones who were sort of late 30s, 40s, where this was the end of the line, if it didn't work out for them, there was often more difficult situations and, more, and sadder stories. But in the end, no one's forcing them to come up there and perform. And, you know, I felt like we were doing a public service for, you know, mad Uncle Johnny, who for 10 years has, has in, inflamed the family Christmas with his crazy singing and, and been telling them, I'm the next Sinatra. And he's not, he's the next Frank Spencer. And we have to get, be rid of him um, for the greater good of his family and the world. So I saw myself as very much, you know, serving a public cause up there. Truly a man of the, the people. Absolutely. Um, you spoke about America's Got Talent, uh, notice this segue, talking about the NRA is something you're, you're particularly mm. big on. Um, so do you think that the NRA and gun culture in general, do you think that's the greatest threat to American safety? Obviously you spend a lot of time in America. Well it's just so ridiculous, so my, my son and his friend who are here, we had a lunch in Malibu recently and they were refused a, a non-alcoholic beer even under both 21, because they didn't have their ID on them to prove they were 21 to have a non-alcoholic beer. Yet an hour's flight away in Arizona at a gun range called Bullets and Burgers, a nine-year-old girl in pigtails recently shot dead her instructor at the gun range with an Uzi submachine gun that he just handed her to fire at targets with her parents in the background laughing. How can that make any sense? You know, uh, Kinder Surprise chocolate eggs, the ones with little toys in, they're banned in America because they are a health hazard. But in their place on the walls of the supermarkets are assault rifles capable of firing 100 bullets a minute. And you can get one like that. Um, you know, they have, by comparison to here, I was editor of the Mirror again after Dunblane in 1996. And Australia had a similar massacre far more dead uh, in Tasmania in the same year. And both countries just basically got rid of guns. You know, we basically banned guns in this country. And guess what? We haven't had a school shooting since Dunblane. America's had 105 school shootings since Sandy Hook. 
I mean, these are staggering statistics. 100,000 people in America a year get hit by gunfire, of which 32,000 die. 18,000 suicides, 12,000 murders. Britain has about 32 a year dead from guns in total. Japan has two. Germany has hardly any, Australia hardly any. And yet, as Michael Moore put it to me, if you look at Australia, Germany, Britain, Japan, four countries steeped in centuries of gun violence. So they can change, but you do wonder what will it take? I wondered after the Aurora movie theater massacre, when 70 people got hit and 12 died, surely they're gonna change the law now. You got some wacko kid dressed as the Joker who's armed to the teeth with 6,000 rounds he's bought on the internet perfectly legally and an AR-15 he's bought perfectly legally and handguns he's bought legally shooting up a, theater, a movie theater, a cinema. They've got to change the laws, nothing. Four months later, Sandy Hook, you know, where the mother of Adam Lanza, the killer, was an NRA member and had six guns in her house because the NRA had persuaded her, brainwashed her, that that was the only way to protect herself. Until mad little Adam goes in her bedroom, shoots her in the head, goes to the school, because he's a dysfunctional little kid who plays video games all day in his bunker, and he goes and shoots up the school and kills 20 children. You know, and I, I, I remember the most powerful interview I did was with the daughter of the headmistress there. And she had seen some of the pictures. And, you know, each of those kids between the ages of five and six was hit three to 11 times with bullets from an AR-15, each bullet making a hole the size of a golf ball. Now, you imagine that's your kid. And the answer from a civilized superpower is to do absolutely nothing. Don't bring in laws for background checks. So 40% of all gun sales in America are just completely unknown, whether they're to mentally insane people, criminals or whatever, just nobody knows. Right? Don't bring in any limit on high capacity magazine clips for, for the guns. So you can have 100 bullets as the guy at the cinema shooting had. He had enough to shoot the whole cinema. Nothing, no limit on high capacity assault rifles. Well, do you think this is all down to the American constitution? Do you think that needs to change? Well, the, as I do? always point out to them, the second amendment the name should give you a clue. It's an amendment. The Constitution is not this great sacred document that's never been changed. It's been changed multiple times. There are multiple amendments. Do the Founding Fathers, do you think they would have sat here now and not changed the law to prohibit the use of machine guns with civilians on the streets? Of course they would have done. So I think there's this ridiculous NRA-driven obsession with telling Americans it's your right to be armed to the teeth. That's the problem. And it's driven from pure commercial greed. The NRA is funded by the gun manufacturers, billions of dollars. So every time there's a mass shooting, up gets Wayne Lapierre, who's a grotesque human being, and he just says, if only everybody in that cinema had had a gun, they'd have stopped him. And as Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, put it to me, imagine the scene at midnight, which is when that screening was, with 400 people jumping up with guns in darkness and, and opening fire. How many would have died? At the school, you know, I interviewed a guy who was a Texas gun store owner, great big fat bloke in a cowboy hat, armed as I did the interview for CNN via remote satellite. And I said, what is your solution? He said, 
I've thought about this and you've got to arm the teachers. I said, you'd arm female teachers because predominantly at Sandy Hook they were female. Yes, I would, sir. I said, where would you put the guns? If you lock them away, they, can't, they won't have time. Guys in there shooting. I thought about that and I would have them in their brassieres. He was serious. He wanted every female teacher in America to have a loaded gun in her bra <laughs> in a school, in a room full of 20 kids. Going, what's that? What's that, miss? You know, it was, it was a nuclear scientist the other day, a woman with four kids whose husband had given her for Christmas an adapted purse with a gun holster. So she put a loaded handgun in it, which she had a legal permit to have, and went into Walmart or one of the superstores, and her two-year-old son, who was sitting at the end of the trolley, said, what's this, you know, took it out and shot his mum dead in the aisle. She's a nuclear scientist. So you're dealing with a whole completely different culture, which you just pray somebody somewhere is brave enough to say enough of this because it's bullshit. I tried, but I got fired. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, there we go. Um, we'll move to questions from the audience now. So if anyone has a question, please do raise your hand as high as you can. Hi. Um, so I was wondering, um, given that there's a certain level of snobbery towards the tabloids um, here in Oxford, and maybe some people don't have an understanding of issues and opinions beyond the pages of The Guardian. Um, what would you say is reasons for us to read the tabloids or have an understanding of what's printed and why? Uh, well, I don't think you're forced to read the tabloids in the way you're not forced to read a book or watch a movie or watch a TV show. No one's, no one's ordering you to. If you want to read The Guardian, read The Guardian. The great thing about the British press is it's so incredibly diverse. The Mirror, very left-wing, was a cheerleader for Miliband. The Guardian voted Miliband. The Independent this time went another way, tactically said, go for conservative Lib Dem so that, you know, we, we stopped Miliband. They didn't believe in him. Um, the Mail's obviously was pro-Tory this time. The Sun was big Blair paper and has now come out for Cameron. So this idea that somehow, you know, they're, they're all, the tabloids are unreadable tosh who shouldn't be taken seriously and the broadsheets are all worthy and wonderful. I've, I've worked for all of them at some stage and the reality is they have good journalists and bad journalists, all of them. The Sun, when it's at its best, communicates to a mass audience quite complex issues in a way that they can understand and find entertaining. I think that's a useful thing. You know, for the working class masses of this country, the Mirror and the Sun perform a valuable uh, purpose in their lives and they enjoy what they read. So the snobbery I find so kind of, you know, what are you really doing? You're being snobbish about working class people, really. That's what it boils down to. You're saying their tastes are contemptible in some way. And I find that contemptible. You know, I enjoy reading the tabloids. I enjoy reading the broadsheets. I like reading the, I get them all every day, all of them, apart from the Daily Star. I don't think anybody gets the Daily Star, but I, I uh, you know, I just think you, you, you've got to get away from that Snobbery. No, no one is forcing. Most of the snobs I know about papers don't ever read the tabloids. You know, the, the Iraq war campaign that we fought is a good example of where I think a, a tabloid did more than any other media entity in the country to try and stop an illegal war. But if that's not a valuable public duty, I don't know what is. So I think, you know, you, 
you be snobbish about these things at your peril. They're not perfect, and they often make big mistakes. When a tabloid makes a big mistake, you can rest assured the Guardian will be there to remind everybody, um, whilst masquerading over their own uh, errors from time to time. So, you know, perspective and choice. Speaking a bit about your journalistic career, um, was there much that you learned from Rupert Murdoch? Yeah, he's a genius. He's what, a genius. What did he's, he learn? Well, I just don't recognise the, the, the mythical image of him that's been perpetuated, actually, a lot by The Guardian, of this kind of monstrous character, this Citizen Kane holding this terrible hold over the world. I edited the News of the World for him for nearly two years. I spoke to him every weekend for up to an hour sometimes. And it was a masterclass in a guy who just got the big picture about everything. You know, and yes, he has the sun, but he has the Times, the Sunday Times. He created Sky News, which is an, a totally impartial news channel, which puts Fox News and the others in America to shame. And is, I think, an extremely good, high-quality news channel uh, opponent to, to the BBC. Or actually, almost a colleague. You know, they work side by side. But that's Rupert Murdoch, too. I never see anybody give him the credit for that. You know, my experience of working for him was that he loved to laugh, he loved to gossip, he loved the politics, he loved everything, but he never ever told me what to put in the paper. He never told me a line to take about anything. And I was running his biggest paper. So if that was my experience, what was the experience of other editors? I think it's massively overdone. This Rupert tells everyone what to do stuff. I really do. It was not my experience. And he took a huge gamble on me when I was 28 years old, put me in charge of his biggest train set, and I found it a mesmerizing, fascinating experience. He, again, he's not, you know, he's not a saint, but nor is he the sinner that people would like him to be. He's not, when you meet him, anything like the caricature. Um, but he doesn't really care. So he's ever done much about trying to fix that, like a lot of other public figures do, where they spend all their time and energy trying to disprove uh, uh, a caricature. He doesn't care. You know, and at his heart, he's a businessman who loves making money. Well, there's plenty of people like that in the world, and they're not all inherently evil just because they like to make money. There are people in this room now who will go and make tons of money. You know, I interviewed Warren Buffett, got him to sing my way on a ukulele live on air. One of my great moments. Um, but there was a great guy, you know, he's not evil, he's just incredibly rich and successful. And there is a slight English mentality about any of these characters, about, oh, they're rich and they're powerful, therefore they must be despicable. I know some very poor, non-powerful people who are despicable. We talk about a lot of people being motivated by money. Is that what motivates you? Money? Yeah. No. So what does? Um, I like, uh, I probably am a bit of an attention seeker. I like being in the middle of things. I like putting my four pennies worth in, stirring the pot, having a bit of fun. Don't take stuff too seriously, unless it is very serious, which normally involves life or death. Outside of that parameter, really just get a perspective on life, you know? Get a grip. If you're not actually dying, or people around you you care about aren't dying, then enjoy life a bit more. A lot of people seem to take life so seriously. A lesson we can all learn, I think. Oh. Next question. Uh, yeah, we'll go. Uh, sorry, Hannah. We'll go right here. Thank you very much for addressing us. From what you've just said, I know it must be a, a real chore for you to be here today. Um, uh, not at all. I no. was just wondering, um, what do you think the responsibilities are for journalists today? 
And do you feel that journalists uphold those in general? And do you feel that you have upheld those responsibilities in your career? Uh, well, I've certainly made a lot of mistakes in my career. And I have been roundly ridiculed, mocked and exposed and everything else for them when I made them. Um, but having said that, I also ran two of the biggest papers in the country for 11 years. And I was very young when I started and I learned as I went. And I think by the end, I became a pretty good editor, actually. Um, but, you know, the reality of British journalism is it's, it's slightly venal, it's, it's aggressive, it's bombastic, it's arrogant, it can be tremendously caring, very influential. It can be all things, it can be hilarious. You know, the, the Fleet Street pack at their best is a wondrous beast to observe in all its glory and mayhem. Uh, when it gets it wrong and crosses the line, like anything, it should be held to account. The, the, the positive of the whole phone hacking and Leveson Inquirer and everything else is I think that Fleet Street has come out the other end probably with a better idea of where the line should lie. Do you accept some allegations that um, maybe the press has influenced maybe the last election too much? No, I don't think they influenced this one at all. I mean, the polls, the polls were the problem. Everyone got overexcited that Miliband might have a chance. As my mother said two days before, there is no way Middle England is voting for that annoying little man. And, and that was, you know, probably the reality, I'm afraid. He, he, I don't think he was anywhere near as good as his brother would have been, for example. Um, how much influence does the Sun have on elections now? I don't think very much. I really don't. I just think, I think Twitter and stuff like that probably has more influence. Moments blow up and people dissect it and they read it. And Facebook actually probably has more impact. I bet more people in here are on Facebook taking opinions about politics than probably from any other media source. So I think it's all moved on. You know, I, I'm editor at large for the DailyMail.com in America, very different entity to the newspaper here, far less political, much more news driven. And I write about American culture, politics, celebrity and so on. It has 220 million uh, readers worldwide on a monthly basis. I did a column the other day about the Jordanian pilot that got burned alive, a horrific story. It's had over two million views, that one column. I don't think there's any newspaper columnist that would get anywhere near that in conventional newspaper you know, print. So it's, you know, I was, the analogy I use is, it's not, it's not newspapers that are dying out, it's the technology used to bring them to us. The printing presses will be gone in 20 years. There won't be a printed version of these papers. It'll all be over. It'll all be online. My kids all read papers online. They don't wait for the paper to come in the morning. Nobody waits for anything anymore. No one's going to wait to see whether I was a total train wreck tonight waiting for the paper tomorrow. You'll all be on Twitter afterwards going, he was a total train wreck. <laughs> um, so it, it's, uh, I just think it's like, you know, the old thing of the Harley, uh, Harley Davidson now you know, used to be the penny farthing, you know, but it's still basically a bike. It's just, just got a lot quicker and faster. Thank you. Next question. Um, yeah, Hannah, we'll go uh, right here, the, the gentleman along here. Yeah. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, at the moment, British TV news sources have to obey quite stringent rules on how biased they can be on air, whereas newspapers have no such rules. Do you think that newspapers should have to follow similar rules on bias, or equally, do you think that uh, TV news sources should be allowed a little bit more flexibility 
in their opinions? Well, funny enough, it's a good question, because there are different rules, and you're right to say that. Um, but in America, for example, there's always this huge furore about Fox News being very right-wing and everything else. I don't really see it as a problem. Fox News gets 2 million viewers a night in a country with 315 million people. It's not going to affect an election. You know, MSNBC is the left-wing version of Fox News, but gets none of the aggravation that Fox does, but is exactly as biased to the left. Just has a smaller audience. CNN, somewhere down the middle. You know, so to me, it's, these things are always exaggerated. The influence and power of a particular TV network or a newspaper or anything. I really believe Facebook is far more influential than any of them. All of them put together. And so I just think people exaggerate this stuff. I didn't see any influence, any effect this time of real influence by papers taking a position. And I wouldn't change the rules particularly. I think television is a more powerful medium now than newspapers, I think. And I think that people look at stuff on television and they believe it. And so the rules probably should be stricter. People know the sun's going to take a position. They know the mail is, and they may or may not agree with it. I don't, I don't believe they get brainwashed. I think they, they can read it and they, they probably know where their paper comes from. I always remember when I, when I was at the Sun, half of them voted Labour, half of them voted Conservative. You know, what does that tell you? And yet under Kelvin McKenzie, it would often be rabidly right-wing, especially with Maggie Thatcher. So even though it was aggressively right-wing, half of them would still go and vote Labour. Having read it every day for five years. So I just think, you know, it's, it, I think it's overdone. But I wouldn't, in answer to your question, I don't think I would change the law for either. I'd let broadcasters keep to the, the set rule, which I think is right, and I'd let newspapers do what they want to do. And if proprietors buy a newspaper and want to spend millions and millions of their own money entertaining people and putting out a paper every day, I think they're entitled to have a political view if they want one. Why shouldn't they? They own it. Thank you. Um, yeah, hang on. We'll, I'll just go right in front. Yeah. Sorry, uh, what do you think about the existence of page three in British newspapers? I think it's an absolute tragedy. It's, it's had to go, personally. I couldn't give a monkey's about that debate. It was ridiculous. You get under Brighton Beach, you'll see far worse than page three. No one seems to care about that. And when Kira Knightley does it for Vogue, oh, it's art. It's art. Jennifer Lawrence strips off Vanity Fair. It's art. You know, Pauline from Birmingham does it. It's disgusting. <laughs> Well, I'm not buying it. I knew lots of Patriot girls. They love their jobs. They got paid loads of money to just look pretty and show their breasts. So what? Aren't we over being scandalised by that kind of thing, really? Does it really make these women look terrible when you've got all these actresses and pop stars stripping off every 10 seconds for vast sums of money for magazines? What is the difference, really? I really just thought it was a... A typical Guardian-run debate by a bunch of lentil-loving, sandal-wearing balls trying to, <laughs> trying to remove a tiny slither of entertainment for the working-class people of this country who just have a day on a building site and like to look at Pauline from Birmingham. Right? Here you like to look at Kira because it's art. It's the same thing. That was Frank. Um, we'll go for the uh, lady there with the blonde hat. I was wondering if you could shed a bit more light on the share scandal you were involved in in 2000, um, if people don't know about that. Um, that's when you invested about £70,000 of yours and your wife's money the day before your paper published that the share price was going to go up. 
And I was wondering, as an editor of a newspaper, how can you claim that you didn't know that story was going to be published? Like, how can you defend yourself from saying that you were involved in criminal intent without saying you were really bad at your job? Well, okay, my answer is, my answer is that there was a four-year DTI investigation into that, and as a result of it, several people got charged, one went to jail, and there was no action taken against me. So I don't feel the need to defend it at all, actually. You know, it was a pretty horrible period to go through as an editor. What it taught me was, uh, well, in answer to your second point, how does an editor not know everything that's in his paper? I can promise you right now that every editor in Britain, probably, if they're a daily paper editor, knows about 5% of what's going in his paper tomorrow. You might not believe that, but it's a reality. So when these editors all come up in these court cases and they say that, I nod away saying, that's probably about right. They want to see most of the sports pages. They want to see most of the back half of the paper at all. They probably won't see most of the little stories that appear all around the page leads. They might have a view of the main front page, page three, a few other pages, the main features maybe. But that probably totals 5 to 10% of a paper a day. That's why you have a huge team of executives doing a lot of the stuff. So it's not as crazy as it sounds. Uh, even though I know it sounds implausible, it's probably the reality. Uh, but in terms of what I learned from that, I'd bought shares 20 times in my life. I think I'd made money on about three of them. I didn't really know what I was doing or getting into. I wish I'd never done it. You should never buy shares as a newspaper editor simply because you don't actually know what may be appearing in your paper, which might cause you a conflict. Um, and, you know, in the end, when it came out, I still had the shares. I hadn't sold them at the big profit. The share price had come way down, and I sold them and gave all the money to charity. Very chastened, went through a four-year investigation. I wished I'd never got involved in the damn thing. But I wasn't, as people like to believe, a criminal. And I have no criminal record. I've never even been arrested for anything in my life. I know you're all startled by that revelation, but yeah, it happens to be true. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you for coming. Um, if you were to say, uh, hypothetically, to listen in on a private conversation between two people in the world right now who are likely to have in a phone call, who would they be? <laughs> Speaking purely hypothetically, if I could, I would like to listen to the conversations tonight between Andrew Strauss and Colin Graves, the chairman of the English Cricket Board. Because Colin Graves, who's Strauss's boss, as I said earlier, told Peterson come back and score runs and we'll pick you. And now his underling Strauss has reversed that decision. I'd love to know what they're saying to each other tonight. So if you could do that and let me know, that would be great. What do you think they're saying to each other? Uh, I think they will see the papers tomorrow and they'll see social media erupting and they'll realise they're facing an incredibly difficult summer against very good teams where England may not win a single test match for the rest of the year and they'll all lose their jobs by Christmas all because they just couldn't get past personal politics to pick the best team. And there's a lesson there for everybody. Get past it. Get past petty, vindictive, little personal stuff and see the bigger picture before it swallows you up. Would you be free for the job? I would love to do that job. They can't afford me, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> no, I, I've got to be manager of Arsenal first, um, obviously. Uh, 
No, I would actually, I'd love to be the MD of, of uh, England Cricket Board because it's a cushy, buddy job. You go off to Australia, the Caribbean, India, South Africa, what's not to love? All you have to do is pick the best 11 cricketers in the country. Not difficult. I would just put Peterson in back in at number four. It's difficult. Sack Alistair Cook, sack Strauss, sack Graves, sack Harrison. I sack most of them. Uh, and then come in and just sit there with Kevin and work out what we were going to do. And I guarantee we'd have more chance of success because he would be batting at number four. Isn't the difficult part when everyone goes nuts on Twitter, I think, is makes the job a little bit more strenuous. Yeah, but you see, the way you respond to Twitter is quite interesting. I see all these stars who say, I'm quitting Twitter. And I always say, oh, yeah, we'll see you in six days. And six days later, OK, I'm back again. You know, because they actually love it. They love the attention. They love all the, the adulation. But a lot of celebrities are cosseted people living incredibly protected lives, surrounded by lawyers, managers, agents, PRs, makeup artists, all designed to make them something they're really not. And so when they get on Twitter, they get Sid Yobbo from Headingley saying, hey, you fat prick. And they're like, oh my good God, you told me I was beautiful. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I relish the battle. I wake up in the morning, sometimes very early, and I'm like, right, how can I find a good troll who can't spell? Um, and, uh, and I love doing that. Who cares what some numpty wants to say about you? You know, really, who cares? I don't give a damn. I think you might need a hobby. Um, <laughs> yeah, Hannah, we'll just go to the gentleman there. Yeah. Thanks for coming, Piers. Um, what did you want to be when you were younger, and what would you still like to achieve in the rest of your life? Like any new industries you want to go into? Uh, I wanted to be a cricketer for England, but I, from the age of six, I also wanted to be a journalist. So I was incredibly lucky. You know, I, I knew absolutely what I wanted to be, um, and I was able to fulfil that dream in spectacular fashion. You know, I ran two huge papers. I'm still involved with it. It led to so many other great things. Loved it. Um, what would I like to achieve? Well, I'm, I'm beginning to drift into movies. So I've appeared in six cameos now in big movies. Total box office gross, $1.4 billion. Uh, Flight, World War Z, the campaign, I could keep going. But the big one comes in about a month here, Entourage the movie, where I have a part, not a cameo. And anyone watched Entourage, the TV series here? If you haven't watched it, it's brilliant. Jeremy Piven and Ari Gold, all that kind of thing. Um, so Mark Wahlberg, this is a brilliant bit of name dropping, but Mark Wahlberg met me at a party and invited me to come around his mansion in Bel Air and watch it on his private cinema screen and poured me fine French Bordeaux as my own massive head appeared on the screen throughout the movie. And I was like, life doesn't get better than this. Hello, Piers, thank you very much for your talk. You've talked a little bit about Twitter and abuse. I'd also like to know your opinion on, the, firstly, the BBC and how it reacted to the Saxgate scandal and its increasing rules on offence, but also... How it does what, sorry? How it reacted to Andrew Sachs with what right, it yeah, did with yeah. rules. And also about what is the role of or culpability of newspapers whenever they pick out one word that somebody says take it out of context and cause a shitstorm like that? Uh, my experience of those supposed taken out of context is they're taken very much in the context they were intended, but the context then gets revised when the person who put it in that intended context gets exposed for what they have done. 
Um, and that's a very different thing to it being taken out of context. So people, you know, I always say don't drink and tweet, right? Because you, I can see certain people and you can tell they've had a couple of glasses and I'm like, tick tock, tick tock, any moment now, in comes the tweet, which is going to be, you know, probably something terrible is going to happen to them. Um, you've got to be careful. You know, I, I have four and a half million followers. If I did a stupid tweet at midnight, I'm not going to get away with it. Um, but nor would I bleat about it being misconstrued or spun out of context or anything. If you write an offensive tweet and you get done in by the papers, you probably deserve it. You know, the Andrew Sachs thing, I actually knew John Sachs very well, who's Andrew's son. And I, I just really felt for him, the damage that has caused the family. And, and my issue with that story and the way the BBC handled it was that it was pre-taped. It wasn't live. They'd done it as on the cusp. You know, Jonathan Ross and Russell Brand had done that in the moment, just got, egged each other on and got carried away, had done that and regretted it and immediately apologised. That's one thing. I'd have sympathy for all of them. But they pre-taped that and all went home knowing what they'd done and had plenty of time to change it, but decided not to. They really wanted this elderly acting legend, Manuel from Faulty Towers, to hear a message saying, I effed your granddaughter. I think that's pretty disgusting and unacceptable. Uh, fuck, marry, kill, and deck or Simon Cowell. What was the question? Was it? Fuck, marry, or kill. Fuck, marry, kill, so Ant, deck, and cow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can we bring Amanda Holden into it? <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, I probably married deck. He's a, he's a very sweet, easygoing kind of guy. You know, Ant's a little bit more, you know, a little bit more wary. They're both great guys, but I'd probably, you know, I'd probably marry Deck. Um, I've already fucked Simon Cowell, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Uh, so I'd, uh, I'd have to kill poor old Ant. Um, <laughs> Which is not too bad, because his wife does my makeup on Life Stories, and she's actually quite attractive, so that, would, uh, that might work out quite well all round, actually. I, th I feel we might be seeing that on Twitter a bit later. <laughs> uh, yeah, next question. Um, yeah, fancy Oh, um, God, it's the, it's the son. Do you honestly think... Friend. Uh, <laughs> Anything could happen here. Do you honestly think it was solely your strong stance on gun control that cost you your job at CNN? Uh, not solely, but I certainly think that it's a bit like if you go to somebody's house and every time you go there, you criticise their curtains. You know, you might be right, and I think I was right, but eventually it starts to annoy them. And they're like, you're a guest in my house. Leave my fucking curtains alone. <laughs> and I think there was a certain degree of that. The problem in America, I mean, I won't go on about guns again, but there are so many gun outrages that once I took my position, I had to keep coming back to it. And then there's a slight danger you become a bit of a, the barroom brawl, a bore, you know, just repeating the same thing again and again to people that don't really want to hear it. Even the smart people in America are just immune to it all. You know, they don't want to hear it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we'll just go back here. Hi, Pierce. Thanks for coming. Um, 
I just wanted to ask about possibly the most explosive interview you've conducted with the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Yes. And I just wondered what was running through your mind when he shouted in your face, the Republic will rise again. <laughs> 1776, Mao took the guns, Stalin took the guns, Hitler took the guns, you won't take my guns. I really felt like taking his guns. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, well, it's been watched by like 20 million people now, that clip. And what was quite good is I was on holiday with my family in Antigua and word had got back to me that there was a petition to have me deported. And it had been posted on the official White House website for, for petitions. And the rule was, and still is, if you get over 25,000 signatures, the president has to respond. And by the time I got back from holiday, there were 120,000 people <laughs> had signed this petition. And the guy who'd started it was Alex Jones. So my producer said, good news, we've got him on. I went, let me check him out. So I checked out his YouTube, and he's a complete nut job, obviously. Um, everything is a conspiracy. He wakes up in the morning, you know, his wife gives him orange juice, it's a conspiracy, right? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, I saw this ranting madman, and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> Collusion with my producer. I won't sit behind the desk. We'll just put two stools facing each other. And then it just, it kicked off. And all I remember is my producer, he's a very smart guy, very, very good at what he does. And he was in my ear going, okay, I'm, I'm ending this, I'm ending this. And I was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Keep this going. This was the best advertisement for gun control you could ever have. This lunatic had 50 guns. 50. We had to drag him screaming into the street, back to his gun lair. <laughs> and it was, it was a very powerful television. Through the humour of it, that went around the world and just made the, the, the far-right gun lobby in America look dangerous and unstable, which is a, an effective tool in an argument. So Alex Jones is one of the most famous interviews you've done, but... Uh, <clears throat> Anyone, yeah, cliched question, but anyone throughout history, who would you like to interview and why? Well, I, I was lucky at CNN to actually interview some of them. You know, I really wanted to interview the Dalai Lama. He's the third longest serving ruler of any kind in the world. And he's a fantastic bloke because I went through a checklist of stuff with him, which was just hilarious TVs. I said, I've got to ask you, you know, you're a very abstinent man in many ways, your holiness. Let me ask you, have you ever had a drink, alcoholic drink? No. Have you ever smoked a cigarette? No. Have you, well, you've never had sex? No. Ever looked at a woman and thought, oh yes. <laughs> and I said, what do you, what do, you do when, you, you know, when the urge overcomes you? I remember and remind myself, I am monk, I am Dalai Lama. <laughs> uh, but then he went through, you know, he's never, he doesn't watch movies, not even Richard Gere movies, which I found incredible. He, you have to know that joke. Um, he doesn't even listen to music. Uh, he just reads and meditates. He doesn't watch television. I said, have you ever watched American Idol? No. I said, you know Simon Cowell? What is that? <laughs> uh, I gleefully relate to Simon. Um, he doesn't have any of the worldly stuff that we all do. He doesn't do any of that. He's 75, he looks about 50, and he exuded an air of genuine spiritual contentment which was quite interesting. He doesn't email, he doesn't text, doesn't have a mobile phone, doesn't have anything that we all consume our lives with, and there's this very happy, contented guy. Um, so he was fascinating. You know, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, when he was the president of Iran, I got the only interview with him at the uh, UN General Assembly in New York, and that was the most intimidating. 
because he came in with 30 henchmen all crowded around. And all I remember is we couldn't start for 20 minutes because he wanted the gaudy doorknobs on the, on the cupboard behind us removed because they were too flashy for the audience back in Iran. And then he wanted the air conditioning turned off in case we were trying to poison him. And then he spent five minutes checking his own camera angles, making sure we had the, the best view of the monster. Um, but that was, you know, that was a moment when you got these guys all around and it's pretty heavy duty. And I'm asking him for the fifth time, do you believe in the Holocaust or not? And my producer's like, maybe we should just move on. <laughs> you know? uh, but my brother gave me the best question because he, he's in the army and he said, ask him, ask him how he'd feel if his daughter fell in love with a Jew. It's a great question. And I asked him and he was very interesting because he, he said, I'd have no problem with that. I have no problem with the Jewish people. There are many Jewish people living in Iran. My problem is with the Zionist regime. And so when you read that Ahmadinejad always said, I want to wipe Israel off the face of the, of the map. Actually, if you study the Farsi translation, as we did, he doesn't actually say that. He says, I want to wipe the Zionist regime of Israel off the face of the map, which is basically Netanyahu, which is a different thing. So it was an interesting debate to have with him. But you know, in history, Henry VIII, you know, why get married for the sixth time? Would be a great question. Where are the heads? Do you keep them, you know? Uh, Churchill, love to interview Churchill. Hitler would be an amazing interview. You know, getting in the minds of just people that are iconic figures in our, in our world and just trying to understand what makes them tick. They're all human beings at the end of the day. So I think there's been lots of people. My personal one would be Sir Donald Bradman, the Australian cricketer, who, uh, who was nearly perfect. So he finally averaged 99.94, only had to get four runs in his last innings to average 100 and be perfect, and he was out second ball for naught, which is that sport in the end is always the great leveller. Uh, but he was an amazing guy. I used to write to him when I was a kid, so to better sit and actually chew the fat with him about, he, he's statistically the greatest sportsman ever of any sport because he ended with an international average 50% higher than the next batsman. And there's no sport ever out there where that is the percentage gap between first and second. So he would be mine. Well, that seems like a good place to end. Last question, how do you think you've done? I think I've been an absolute triumph. Uh, <laughs> and uh, regardless of whether you lot all think otherwise, you'll find four and a half million people are about to hear that. So uh, no, I've, I've enjoyed it. You've been a very uh, captive audience. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's, a, it's actually a great honor, even though my wife went to Cambridge um, and obviously it's much keener I go there. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's been a, a great honour and thank you for having me and listening and being such a, a good attentive audience. I've appreciated it. <laughs>